When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Quirology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 28. I, I tell people frequently that I have a very, very specific transgender gay agenda, um, and it is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and love my neighbor as myself. Laura Beth Taylor is a blogger, author, and speaker. She grew up in a conservative Christian military home and currently works as a life skills coach for a behavioral health clinic in Indiana. Her book, Shattering Masks, tells about her journey as a trans woman of faith, and one of her main goals is to help people live as the strongest and most content versions of themselves. I've known Laura Beth for a couple years. Uh, We see each other at the same conferences several times a year. Uh, and I realized I, I've never really heard much of Laura Beth's story before. Uh, so part of this episode is Laura Beth's story, uh, and then we get into a really interesting conversation around authenticity and filters and how living authentically doesn't necessarily mean living without a filter, uh, which I know those lines can get kind of blurry sometimes. Uh so I, I like learned so much from this conversation, uh, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Uh, I know I say that every week, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it seriously is just it's just so good. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. Laura Beth, hi. Hello. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Having a gorgeous day here in the Midwest. <sighs> That's awesome. It is once again raining here in Seattle, but I feel like that's <laughs> that's. Always... I think it's supposed to be raining in yeah, Seattle. Yeah, I think I that's mean, just, just a given. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should just announce when it's not raining in Seattle. Probably. Be... <laughs> yeah, that might be the better way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to start, there's a question I start every episode with. Uh, but how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Um, well, recently I've started identifying myself as uh, Laura Beth of the House Bucklider, first of my name, builder of bridges, breaker of boxes, and mother of unicorns. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> that's um, amazing. <laughs> but that's that's a little complicated. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably more what you're looking for. <laughs> um, I identify um, as a intersex trans lesbian woman. Um, and actually, now that I just said that, the first one is probably less complicated than um, yeah. the, the actual identity in some ways. But um, And sometimes I throw mystic Christian in there just for the fun of it to... Um, shake things up a little bit but um but yeah it's been and how has my faith impacted that um you know my faith kept me in a box for 40 plus years um i was i was born in 1972 and i didn't come out until 2014 so i was 42 and at that point had been in therapy for Roughly 12 years, um, having been eventually diagnosed with um, what was then gender identity disorder, what we would now call gender dysphoria. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't reparative therapy um, or conversion therapy by name, but it was for the sake of your faith, you need to manage this and keep it in a box. Um I was married at the time and had um, had three kids or have three kids. I still have them. Um, <laughs> three kids through that that season, and so there was there was just a lot of competing ideologies that were um, trying to define who I was. Um, I was also diagnosed with PTSD um, to dealing with um, the fallout of uh, sexual abuse and. Um, some life-threatening traumas and um, all of these things were just coming together in this perfect storm of it's better to be who everyone else wants me to be than to really tackle who I am. Um, So the whole question of identity um, is one that I ran from for um, the good, good majority of my life. And, and a lot of that in the name of God, and in, more specifically in the name of the church. Yeah, so, so it sounds like, for the most part, I mean, your faith, at least in that season, was a huge restricting factor. Like, it was kind of the box that kept you from stepping into the fullness of who you are. Yeah, um, as, as I came out of that, so 2014, I... Um, was dealing with some physical issues and I'll talk more about that in a little bit but um, had been dealing with chronic pain for about 25 years at that point and it it was undiagnosed we couldn't figure out what was causing it and I'd been in for some more scans and more doctor's appointments and um, got a diagnosis of psychosomatic and basically the medical doctors were just chalking everything up to the trauma and the gender identity and saying that the physical pain was just a, um, a manifestation of these other issues that I was dealing with. And so as, um, as I processed that and um, our marriage was falling apart by this point and uh, I ended up in the hospital having abandoned a suicide plan um, makes me part of that 42% of transgender people who, um, 
either uh, plan or attempt suicide. Um, it didn't get as far as an attempt for me, but um, there was definitely a solid a solid plan in place. And so I ended up in the hospital for a while, ended up in outpatient therapy. Um, and um, working with that therapist, I... I came to this point where I was dealing with the identity, dealing with the marriage, dealing with my health, and it wasn't a Christian-based program that I was in at this point, but um, I had been able to just ascertain that the, the therapist was a believer, and we connected somewhat on that level, and I just looked at her when we were one-on-one -on -one at some point and uh, said, I don't think my faith is big enough to handle this, and her response was pivotal. For me, she just looked at me back and said, "I don't, I don't think it's your faith that's not big enough. I think it's your idea of God that's too small." And that turned my thinking on its ear. Um, I talk about growing up in evangelical circles, and we hear a lot about this God-shaped box or, or God-shaped hole in our hearts, and only God can fill this hole. And what? And I still believe that. By the way, I still believe that God has created us to be in relationship with God, and um, and so that that God-shaped hole, while it has some cultural connections to it that are challenging um, in principle, is is still true. However, in order to fill the God-shaped hole in my heart, I had created this God-shaped box in my head, hmm. and so um, when I when I talk about my identity as as being a breaker of boxes, it's it's it literally taking that box box apart one plank at a time. It's like, what is it about God that has limited my perception of who God created me to be? Um, as we investigated more and we discovered that part of the physical pain I was experiencing was the result of being born with both male and female repro reproductive organs, um, it challenged my concept of gender, and it challenged my concept of what perfect creation was, what it meant to be created in the image of God. Um, you know, was I physically a result of um, of the fall of de-evolution? Um, basically, was I a mutation? Um, or was this something that God intentionally, to use the scriptural term, wove into my being um, in the womb? Um, you know, and is it is it something that He is this part of the experience that He desired for me to bring me closer to Him? Um, so these were all things that I had to I had to all of a sudden wrestle with. I had to come to terms with, um, and being like. Uh, any good Bible college student, um, I had studied at Moody Bible Institute and got a degree in Christian ministry from Dallas Baptist University. So um, I did what we all do, and I wrote a paper. There you go. And <laughs> I was <laughs> uh, about 20 pages later, um, and um, I gave the paper to my – at the time, my wife. It wasn't – just not long before we separated, I gave. I was working part time for the church, so I gave a copy of the paper to the to the pastor I was working with and the the elder that um, was part of this church plant we were working on. And um, in the introduction to the paper, I said, "I don't. I, I doubt that after 
I'm done with this. I'll be able to call myself evangelical. Um, just because I knew that I was stepping away from some very basic tenets of evangelical faith, specifically surrounding sexuality and gender. Um, and as, as I engaged in that paper, um, I wasn't even dealing with my sexual orientation at that point. I was just going back to the basics of what is gender? What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Why have I always struggled with the identity that I, of male as I was given at birth? Why have I always resonated more with a female identity? Um, what does my biology have to do with that? Um, just all of these layers of what we look at as identity that we so often take for granted. Um, I had a therapist once tell me that I had an ego problem, um, which I thought was really, really bizarre because I was like the most insecure person I'd ever met. And, um, yeah, I just had all all sorts of self-image issues, and um, I called her out on it. She's like, "No, you don't. You don't have an overinflated ego." She says, "You don't. You don't have an ego. You have no sense of self." And the sense of self that I had was the the sense that I had created, um, the shell that I had built um, for everyone else around me, and it's what I refer to as the masks, um, and. As I went through the process of of letting God out of the box, of embracing these different concepts of self, of embracing these different layers and complexities of identity, um, I was able to start shattering those masks and just start bringing, um, discovering uh, my true self and embracing that journey and just allowing me to become um, – whatever it is that the life was building in me so wow that's like i've as we were kind of talking before this episode like i i said like i don't think i've ever really heard your story before and like my goodness like what a journey you've been on it's, it's been intense yeah it has been intense yeah, yeah. um but beautiful mm -hmm. um just you know, there's there's been a lot of hurt. Obviously, we we ended up getting a divorce. Um, that relationship is is still very strained um, for for obvious reasons. Um, you know, I've I've been on a journey with my own parents, who have um, more or less embraced me as their daughter. And um, I tell a story um, not long after I got out of the hospital. Um, I was still married, and um, I, I came basically with a list of things that in order to manage the dysphoria in a more effective way, I needed these concessions from my wife at the time. Um, and it wasn't even close to a full transition. It was just allow me to embrace this, this piece of me, allow me to be more true to myself. Um, and... I mean, it was basically a blanket no that I got uh, uh, in response to that. Um, but she also said, and, and if you're going, if you're you're truly going to go down this journey, you have to call your parents and tell them. And for some reason, I never hesitated. Um, and you know, I I wasn't that familiar with the LGBTQ community, specifically the Christian LGBTQ community. 
at that point. So um, this whole idea that youth are getting turned out onto the streets by their Christian parents by the thousands every year is was foreign to me, not even on my radar. It never occurred to me that my parents would not accept me. Um, I knew it would change my relationship with them. But anyway, we got on the phone. Um, I said, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be some changes in life. And they knew I'd been in the hospital and they knew why. And I said, yeah, that's probably a really good thing because um, whatever was happening wasn't working, obviously. So change is good. And dad then stepped in and said, before you go any further, I just want you to know there is nothing you can tell us next that will prevent us from being in relationship with you. And when I talked to parents, when I talked to to moms and dads um, whose kids are coming out or who think their kids might be coming out or or asking to handle it, um, I go back to that moment because that set the tone for everything else that happened over these past four years. Um, So I shared as best I could about the therapy that I'd been in, about the journey that I'd been on. Um, last 10 years before that, um, they knew some bits and pieces of it. I tried to explain what gender identity disorder was. Um, I tried to explain transgender. Um, it was lost on them. They they understood gay, and they thought that I was coming out as gay um, when I first had the conversation with them or started the conversation, but that wasn't exactly where this was going, and so um, – it, they they just did their best in that initial conversation, and I can only imagine how overwhelming that that might have been for them. But um, we got all said and done, and um, there was a moment of silence. And mom, and bear in mind they they live in East Tennessee in very rural conservative spaces, and um, mom says, "Well, I don't I don't understand most of what you just said." But I am a little relieved because I was kind of afraid you were going to tell us you were a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) And I honestly don't remember what I said. I probably, uh, well, we'll we'll just, that might be another conversation for another time. But (laughs) I probably didn't even know at that point. Yeah. To tell the truth. But, um, yeah, so it was just there was this this sense of yeah, it's okay. We're we're gonna be okay. Um, I didn't even have at that point the intersex diagnosis, um, and for about the first year that I was doing um, work as an advocate uh, in the church, um, I didn't even really disclose that that diagnosis. Um, and the reason for that was I didn't want people to look at me um, and say, okay, well, it makes sense for you. You know, you have this, you know, in, in some cases, some senses in the transgender community, that intersex diagnosis is a luxury. Because I can look at these churches, I can look at these pastors and say, look, biologically, there's a reason that this is true. There's a, there is a rational tangible thing that I can point to and say this is this is why I identify this way. Um, you know, what I've learned is that more than likely most transgender people, if not all, 
have some sort of biological element to their gender identity. It may not be diagnosable. It may not be something that we can scan in an image or get a blood test on. And so, um, you know, I didn't, I don't want the church as a whole or families in in general to um, to look at their transgender the transgender people in their lives and say, yeah, but this is just a choice you're making. It makes sense for that person because they have this diagnosis, but you just chose this. Um, nobody would choose this. Nobody would just suddenly decide to buck all of the convention of society and all of the normatives that go with it and the privileges that go with it and um, and go this direction in life. So. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, that point right there, I mean, for <laughs> for your identity, for probably almost everyone's identity who's listening to the podcast, like, that's a huge point. Like, no one would ever probably choose this right out of the gate for themselves. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, for, for me, I, I just look at that point like, yeah, like, <laughs> that's inarguable <laughs> to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's and there is a cultural element, and um, there was a an episode of uh, Sex in the City, which okay, I just admitted that I watched episodes <laughs> of Sex in the City, but um, okay, I'll admit I've watched all of the episodes of Sex yes. in the City, but <laughs> but there was an episode where um, one of the main characters was um, dating a pastry chef who lived in Soho, and he was just rather effeminate and she was just trying to figure out this relationship. And she finally just said, are you, are you gay? And he's like, no, I'm not gay. I was like, I'm a pastry chef in Soho. If I wanted to be gay, I'd be gay. Um, there is a growing culture where it's more and more accepted. It's more and more normalized. Um, that culture is not found in any of the faith-based communities that that I walk in. Uh, you know, even the affirming communities, it's far from normalized. It's something that we have to label as affirming. Um, you know, we don't we don't talk about being affirming of accountants or lawyers or um, you know, we don't talk about being affirming of cancer patients or um, whatever other things life throws at us. But we have to talk about deliberately affirming the LGBTQ people in the church. Um, and that's that's a, a culture shift that's going to be, be long and slow and changing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like it's a it's no matter kind of where we are in these spaces it's it's still a pushing against the the normative flow of wherever we are um and that can be really difficult at times because it does take such an intentional effort to just live out who we are um it's <laughs> that can make for good and bad days but <laughs> yes it can yeah yeah one one ways I describe that there's there is immense power in authenticity, um, and I think early on in this journey, as I started developing a true ego, as I started shadowing the masks, um, 
learning the difference between living authentically and still having filters. Um, uh. You know, it's it's not if if I need to put a smile on my face and go to work for the day, that's not being unauthentic. Um, that's just having a filter to function through the day. Um, if someone comes to me and you know, says, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And they're, you know, um, obviously of, of a Muslim background or something, and I deny it because I don't want to offend them. That's not being authentic. If someone comes to me and asks if I am transgender um, and I deny it, that's not living authentically. Um, so the learning the differences between being authentic and having those filters was important but being authentic um, in the context of the church is costly um, you know we kind of joke that you know if you want to if a pastor wants to be authentic um, he does two things he steps out from behind the pulpit um, and sits on a stool <laughs> um, sometimes he'll take off his glasses just to you know, remove that barrier and just really connect with the congregation, you know? And then he'll talk about that two seconds of lust that he have as he drove past a Victoria's Secret billboard on the way to church. But then how God brought this beautiful picture of his lovely wife to mind and he was able to bring the, that lust under control and, you know, have that moment of authentic confession. Um, and that's what passes for authenticity a lot of times in the church. And um, we, in in the LGBTQ community, I think the Christian LGBT community in particular, have had to find new depths of authenticity in order to live with ourselves, let alone with each other in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I... I think that's so true. Like, and, and that's so interesting that, that kind of, that contrast that you're making between authenticity and still having filters, because I think so often, I think when, when we're maybe like newly coming out or newly stepping into living authentically, that boundary can be so fuzzy of like, how much do I share about myself? How do I over, like, I know when I first came out, I was like, just just spewing out i wasn't contained for good reason i I wrote a book so (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what that says about my boundaries yeah uh, yeah yeah but it's like it's it's that and and of course we are of course we are just wanting to kind of burst out into the world and and live into that freedom that we finally found but there is something about this idea of filters and and reading environments and and having to um, start being wise around authenticity. Well, and and there is, you know, to me, I I tell people frequently that I have a very, very specific transgender gay agenda. um, And it is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind and soul and love my neighbor as myself. Um, And when I bring my authenticity under the banner of those principles. Um, my authenticity is driven around feeding healthy relationship. 
healthy relationship with God um, personally on a meditative level, on a spiritual level, um, healthy relationship with family, with friends, with coworkers, it, that all just, you know, expands out from my very tight inner circle to, you know, the cashier that I, you know, just I'm going to have a passing moment with. Um, and so it, when I put authenticity in the context of relationship, it's no longer just about me. It's about the other person as well. And so me coming out and spewing my gender identity, my um, struggles with depression and anxiety um, and suicidal ideation and just all of a sudden throwing all of that on the table might not be in the best interest of this other person. You know, there might be things that um, that's doing more harm than good at the moment. So the filters come into play sheerly out of respect for the environment that I'm in and the context that I'm in. And I think we need to be, as a community, um, we need to be incredibly sensitive to the impacts we have, both positive and negative, on the people around us. That gets really challenging when we start talking about going into unaffirming spaces. Um, how much, how much do responsibility do I take for the sensitivities of an oppressor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it's like I I hear what you're saying, and and uh, on one hand I'm like completely agreeing. On the other hand, like I, I, the weight of that of like of having to take on that responsibility and and almost the pressure of uh it, it feels i mean in a way there there's a sense in those words of of feeling like you almost have to go back into the closet but i don't think that's what you're saying um i'm not um no but uh, no no but um no we don't have to go back into the closet and also we don't have to carry the closet door everywhere we go um one of my mottos for this year has been allowing the becoming and just exploring what you know what that means as far as personal growth and personal exploration and um the uh, and part of what that is is existing in the moment um so that not every single moment is an out of the closet moment it doesn't mean it's an in the closet moment um you know, and I, I even use the, the word box instead of closet a lot. I, I don't always have to be thinking out of the box or in the box. Sometimes there's just not a box. Sometimes we just are. And so um, it's not – while it, it may feel for a moment like we might have to step into the closet to be sensitive to our environment, um, you know, if – Thinking about it this way, not not everyone in the room is addressing their issues of their sexuality. Not everyone in the room is addressing issues of gender. Um, now, we find a lot that gender kind of comes up because all of a sudden in social environments, men and women will split and go two different directions. <laughs> and, um, you know, which way do these people expect me to go? Um, the uh, But... 
um, yeah, being sensitive to being sensitive to where other people are. Um, and I'm phrasing this. I'm, I'm working on phrasing this a little bit be, be, because of what you were saying about that feeling of being back in the closet. Um, the way that I present myself um, in the context of the church, in the context of a faith-based community, um, will shape the perception of that closet. So if I allow the people around me to have that journey, if, um, if I allow them, you know, when we're talking about parents and John Pavlitz uh, coined this phrase, the second closet, um, when we come out of our closet as LGBT people, LGBTQ people, the, our parents and family and, um, you know, sometimes close circles, they go into their closet. And then, you, you know, they're not going to tell their extended family. They're not going to tell their coworkers. <clears throat> um, they're not going to tell their, their churches until they're ready to come out of that second closet. And so um, allowing them the space for that journey is, is just as important as it was for us to have the, the space for our journey. Um, and, and the church is no, no different. To allow them the room to come out of their second closet and embrace us with that is – and that can sometimes be painful, and it, sometimes it might mean that we disengage for a while. Um, one of the reasons that I started getting more into advocacy work was because I found that I had a knack for being in those spaces and for being on that journey with people. Um, I found that I would go and I do a lot of work at coffee shops just one-on-one -on -one across the table. And I would go and just sit, and these pastors would – we'd have a you know just a, a casual introduction of a conversation, and then all of a sudden they would start asking questions, but then answering the questions for themselves. And they were just – and it wasn't that I was – I didn't have to go ask any questions. I didn't have to answer any questions. I was the question. And when I allowed myself to just be the question and let them – have their own little dialogue here, the conversation and the relationship made so much more progress than when I stepped in to try and debate or convince or argue. And, you know, I just let them wrestle with it in front of me and, and sometimes would step in. And if they were, you know, looking for a word or looking for some language, or if they said something that could be offensive, I would, out of respect for them, not, I mean, I'd educate them along the way but um and there were times that they would get to a point that was like no I, I just i just can't i'm not there yet or i don't want to be there or i'm not going to ever be where you want me to be and and that was okay we had to accept that and part ways amiably in that sense but um yeah allowing people to have that journey just to be the question with them uh, I feel like I'm taking a lot of rabbit trails on you. Sorry. No, this is, no, no, this is great. Like in, 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 in thinking about that, like as you were talking, I was thinking about like uh, my therapist always talks about, we're always focusing in on no matter where you are in an environment, how do you stay grounded in yourself? And it, it sounds to me like that's, that's kind of what you're saying. Like 
no matter how we're necessarily presenting or or what filters we're putting in place, there's still a rootedness and groundedness in authentically living as yourself that probably wasn't there before we came out of the closet. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, something interesting that I've I've observed. Um, you know, we talk about um, whether you want to see it as a plurality or a duality, but this sense of body and spirit or body, soul and spirit. Um, and um, one of the things that pushed me toward finally coming out was um, really looking at, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I'm sure you are studying psychology, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, you know, your basic physical needs, your safety needs, then your need for belonging and connection, and then, you know, more of a conscious level, um, spiritual uh, awakening that happens at the top of that pyramid. And what I've found with, um, and I've been specifically discussing this within the transgender community, but I think it applies to the LGBTQ community as a whole, or I might even go as far to say any marginalized group that has had a closeted experience of some sort or a stigmatized experience of some sort. Um, I think from a, a from that that body person of us, we we follow that hierarchy of needs from the bottom up, like most people do. Um, the closeted person, that closeted part of our personality, whether you want to call that spirit or soul or essence, however you want to describe it, works through that hierarchy of needs from the top down. We come to a sense of self-awareness um, that is not grounded in our physical presentation. It's not grounded in what other people see in us. It's not grounded in our sense of belonging, but it's internalized. And so what we have to do is we have to take that internalized sense of self, move it into that sense of belonging, let that become part of our safety network, and let that become part of how our physical needs are being met. So it's literally working through that hierarchy of needs backwards as we come and embrace that authenticity. And then and then it turns into a place, a, a, I mean, to use that word grounded again, a ground from which we can then stand. Yes, yeah. Um, a question I've been asking people lately has, has your body ever danced with your soul to the music of your spirit? Mm. Um, and it's just this, this picture of wholeness where um, all of the plurality of who we are is in harmony. And, you know, that's what, to me, living authentically has allowed. It's allowed my, um, it's allowed me to work both from the top down and the bottom up of the, those hierarchy of needs and to blend those two pieces into a more solid, as you say, more grounded uh, sense of who I am. And sense, and from that grounded space, be able to relate to the world around me um, from a different place. Uh that uh, I, I'm sitting here like with chills because I think that is such a beautiful picture of like I feel like the way and the life that Christ calls us into is that kind of dance between body, soul, spirit, self. Like that, 
it, it, it just feels so much more life-giving. Um, and, and I feel like that's that's it right there. <laughs> it is. I mean, for me, life-giving is a great word. Mm. Um, life-saving, maybe even. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I'm curious, maybe to close. Um, sure. You you had said kind of at the beginning, like that that uh, when you were talking about being in therapy and with your therapist, um, and, and she had said, maybe it's your idea of God that's too small. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious in then this this journey that you've been on. Would you say that your idea of God has grown? Uh, and what maybe has that kind of looked like? Um, well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, the uh, grown immensely. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, creating the, so the emphasis of religion is to create God or a sense of God that is manageable, that's explainable. Um, especially in a post-scientific age of religion, um, we have a immense addiction to answers. Um, we love to know. We love to explain. And um, part of this new concept of I've had of God these past four years is just embracing the mystery of God, of being willing to, to live with the questions and, um, let the answers come as, as they do or not, you know, to, to find peace in the fact that answers may not be part of the equation for us on certain issues, on certain things. Um, I'm working on a blog post, um, that'll be up shortly and um i'm pulling it up because i haven't even said it enough to quote it to myself but um um here it is when we bring peace let's see here um when when we seek answers as a means of wholeness we become slaves to answers and to knowledge. When we have to know in order to maintain our sense of peace, or in order to maintain our concept of God, our peace is as fragile as the next tidbit of information that might come along and disrupt what we thought we knew. When we bring peace and wholeness with us to the question, we bring the endurance we need to wait for the answers. When we wait for the answers with patient endurance, we find the great destinations that were intended not the mediocre destinations we've contrived we've contrived so in essence my concept of god has has changed to where i don't have to define it it doesn't have to be in a box it doesn't have to be contained it doesn't have to be always explainable um and that doesn't fly in contrast to our um you know the the directive we have in scripture to to give an answer for our faith. I can tell you exactly why <laughs> I um, I don't have to explain the entire essence of who God is. I can give you an answer for that. Um, so uh, does that answer, does that answer your question it about? Does. Where it is? Yeah. Yeah, it's, and I think I mean 
that again sounds like you uh, a more rooted <laughs> grounded um way of practicing faith it's it's embodied and it's it's that you said that that bringing peace with us wherever we go um what i'm planning sustainable yeah yeah if i always have to have an answer if i always have to know then at the moment that i don't know i'm in a faith crisis if my faith is based on a god that is and me engaging with that God as life and spirit and God chooses to reveal it, then I'm able to live in a moment. I'm able to live in the here and now uh, without having to anxiously seek and find and worry about what, what is coming. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like there's a lot, of, a lot more breathing room there. That's a good space. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Uh, Laura Beth, thank you. So thank you. Much. Yeah. This has been fun. Yeah. It's so good. So, so good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how can people find your work? Um, I, it can be found at laurabethtaylor.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, too, as Laura Beth Taylor. Um, it's my public page out there. And... Um, uh, my book is on Amazon.com. It's Shattering Masks. Um, there's a an ebook and paperback copy of it, that available. Yeah, great, wonderful. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And um, excellent. Yeah. So, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate your work and what you do for our community for giving us all a voice. Again, you can find Laura Beth's work over at her website, laurabethtaylor.com. She's also on Facebook at Laura Beth Taylor. Make sure to go pick up a copy of her book, Shattering Masks, on Amazon. Corology is on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. If you feel like Corology is worth a dollar a month, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge. Every little bit helps, seriously. Another really easy way to support Corology is by leaving a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of who you'd like to see on the podcast or if you just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye!